Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. On this episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly, Ben Rhodes from Pod Save the World joins us to discuss the controversies and diplomatic boycotts surrounding the Winter Olympics as they begin in Beijing this week, and how the Chinese government might react if an athlete decides to protest at these games. And later... Michael Vick's NFL stardom, fall from grace, and subsequent penance have all been well chronicled. But who was he before he was a household name? Vick joins us to discuss the first time he appeared in Sports Illustrated and who he was back when he went to Virginia Tech. But first, you're going to hear a lot about Aaron Jackson during these winter games. SI senior writer Stephanie Epstein joins us to tell the incredible backstory of how Jackson went from roller derby to speed skating how she became the first black woman to win a World Cup race, and how one mistake at the Olympic trials almost cost her a trip to Beijing. It's February 2nd. I'm your host, John Gonzalez. From Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio, this is Sports Illustrated Weekly. From a young age, I knew that I just wanted to go fast on skates. Aaron Jackson is a speed skater from Ocala, Florida, and one of SI's Olympic cover athletes. 
I don't really know what it is. I just like going fast, you know, and um, <laughs> I just don't get that same speed from anything but but speed skating. Leading up to this year's Olympic trials, she took the speed skating World Cup season by storm. And the finishing time for Jackson is 37.55, and she's the winner of this race. And it's an Olympic season, so what are you, what are you dreaming of? Uh, dreaming of Olympic gold, like everyone else, yeah. I believe there have been eight World Cup races, and she's won four of them. Stephanie Epstein is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated who wrote our cover story on Aaron Jackson. She's an incredibly dominant skater, and everybody's kind of waiting to see just how she's going to qualify. Part of the reason has been she just puts together perfectly assembled 500 meters. During her race, she stumbles. She's looking to put together, oh, big slip, big slip for Erin Jackson. That's going to cost her at least a few tenths of a second. In the second at 38.25, Bo still leads. And if Kimmy Getz gets inside of Jackson's time, she will miss the games. This, this is a stunner. There's this quirky rule in speed skating that if you slip and fall, you can be granted a reskate. But if you slip and stay on your feet, that's just sort of the breaks. Can you explain that for everybody? There's a stumble in almost every race. And so if you offered a reskate for every stumble, they would just be rerunning every race forever. And so they've set it up so that you have to actually hit the ground. And she didn't. She basically didn't mess up enough. If she had slipped harder and fallen, she would have had a reskate and it would have been fine. But because she managed to stay on her feet, she's out of luck. Yeah, and in her post-race interview on NBC, Stephanie, Aaron Jackson said she knew that if she had gone down, she would have gotten a reskate, but she stayed on her feet anyway. I would have thrown myself forward and said that was it for me. But why did she do that? Why did she decide to try to stay upright and keep going? From a moral perspective, like she felt like that's sort of a flop, that you shouldn't be encouraged to fail and have that be rewarded. Making it so that you have to fall to get a reskate, like it's uh, kind of encouraging people to maybe take the sit, you know, if they have a stumble kind of like mine. So, you know, of course it flashed in my head, like maybe I should have sat down, you know, but <laughs> but I think it's just a bad thing to, to encourage that. So I think when it comes you to- You should be trying your best all the time and trying her best all the time was staying on her feet and trying to win. And that's commendable to a point, but we are talking about going to the Olympics. She's one of the best in the world. We all want to see her in Beijing. So now this story goes from- being about a missed opportunity to a story that's really kind of about friendship, Stephanie. Tell us who Brittany Bowe is and what role does she play here? So Brittany Bowe is another American speed skater. She's been one of Aaron Jackson's idols for years. And, you know, Aaron Jackson's got pictures of herself as a little kid with Brittany Bowe as she came back from winning various events. They've become very close. I've grown up with Brittany. I've known her like almost my whole life, you know, growing up, looking up to her um, in Ocala. And like, I've always known what an incredible person she is. Brittany Boke, she finished ahead of Aaron Jackson in the 500 meters. And then she also qualified in the 1000 meters and the 1500 meters, which are really more her specialties. She knows she's not a medal contender in the 500. The easiest way for Aaron to go is for one of the teammates who finished ahead of her to seed their spot. And in both cases, Brittany Bowe's case and also in Kimmy Getz's case, who finished second, they had qualified in other events. But that's still a huge ask. You know, these people earned yeah. a trip to the Olympics. And, you know, it's not their job to make up for the fact that 
she slipped. But in the end, she felt like she wanted Aaron Jackson to be there when they named the team. Erin has earned her right to be on this 500-meter team. She's ranked number one in the world, and uh, no one's more deserving than her to get an opportunity to bring Team USA home a medal. And uh, after that unfortunate slip, I knew in my mind before that night was even over that if it had to come down to a decision of mine, she, she could have my place. Wow, that is a really remarkable act of sportsmanship and friendship. They're friends, and she felt like this is what friends do. So she dominates the World Cup season, and in doing so, Stephanie, she becomes the first Black woman to stand atop the podium. And Olympic fans will no doubt remember Shawnee Davis, who won gold for the U.S. in 2006 and 2010 and became the first Black athlete to win an individual gold at the Winter Olympics. But what does Erin Jackson think about being the first Black woman to break through in long track speed skating? Yeah, that's important to her. She knows that there are not a lot of little girls who look like her participating in this sport. And she and her family are hoping that down the line, maybe the complexion of the sport might change. Being the the first black woman to qualify for the long track team, it wasn't even something that I realized until after the fact when I saw the headlines about it. It would be awesome if, if it wasn't true, you know, like if I wasn't the first. It would be nice if there had been plenty of people before me, but, you know, there weren't. And since, since I'm the first, I just hope to you know, like set a good path, you know, and I hope that I can inspire more people to get out there and try these winter sports. Before she had qualified for the 2018 Olympics, Stephanie, Erin had only been on speed skates for four months. She grew up inline speed skating and also, and this is my favorite part, she did roller derby. So take us through how she goes from roller derby to speed skating. So she, as I mentioned, grew up in Ocala and she was a big inline speed skater as a kid. I started out as just like what's called a rink rat. That's just someone who hangs out at the skating rinks with their friends, you know, just skating around, listening to music, eating pizza in the snack bar. But then I was also the kid who would occasionally get in trouble at those sessions just for going too fast. Like many, I think, elite athletes, she just sort of had a lot of energy as a kid. And her parents were thrilled to find this as a way to burn off some of that energy. Erin Jackson showing off her derby skills a little bit there, holding her off. She was really good at it. As they approach the finish line, it's going to be Jackson. And so as she hit sort of the top of the sport, she started to realize what a lot of people who have made the similar transition have realized, which is inline speed skating is really fun, but you can't go to the Olympics. Then it's like you're kind of looking for something more, right? So a lot of the inliners make that switch over to long track or short track speed skating on ice because those have like the pathway to the Olympic Games. Inline speed skating and ice speed skating, they seem like they would be really similar and in a lot of ways they are, but the way you generate power is very different. Very good inline skaters will speed skate for a few days and come off and just their legs are so sore because they're using muscles that they didn't even really know they had. Going into this new sport, I was like, I've been a skater my whole life, and this is just another form of skating. Shouldn't be too hard, right? But yeah, I was kind of like in for a rude awakening uh, when I switched over to the ice. She was on a trip to the Netherlands, and she got on the ice basically just for fun, tried it, didn't really like it. It was as cold as she thought it would be. You know, she's <laughs> a really, really good inline speed skater, and she mm-hmm. it's not that much fun to be incredible at something and then do something pretty similar and kind of stink at it. And she was just Mm kind of like, all right, I tried that, but I'd like to go home now. So she stops and then restarts at some point, right? Yeah. So as a sport, ice speed skating keeps an eye on really promising inline speed skaters because they understand that this is a really good pipeline. 
And so they've been kind of hitting her up for a while and trying to get her to make the switch. Um, I got an invitation from the, uh, the talent recruiter um, out here in Salt Lake. And he's like, hey, like, have you thought about ice skating a little more? Like, do you think you want to give it a shot? And I said, okay, sure. And she's out there for a while and she starts to feel a little bit better. She starts to get good at it. And something kind of clicks. And she suddenly feels like she understands how to do this. So at that point, I had like four months of long track training going into the Olympic trials. Her coach says, let's send you to U.S. trials just basically to get her reps. He said, like, don't be delusional. This is not, you're not going to the Olympics. You're going to a race. She didn't even tell her family because she said she thought of it as a race where other people have a chance to qualify for the Olympics and she is going to practice skating. She had plans during the Olympics. She was actually supposed to be at Roller Derby World Championships in Manchester, England. And then, shockingly, she qualifies. Jackson edging ahead to win the pair. And guaranteeing a spot on the U.S. Olympic 500-meter team, the first black woman to qualify for a U.S. Olympic long track speed skating spot. History made here in Milwaukee tonight. And it was very overwhelming. I would imagine it would be overwhelming for her. It's a massive jump from doing inline skating to then uh, getting on the ice to then going to the Olympics in four months. She had to be surprised and excited as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, she was thrilled. But her coach, I think, had a really good handle on it. He was the one who told her, you know, don't be delusional before they went. And then even after she qualified, he was basically like, congratulations, but you're still not very good. So don't put pressure on yourself. You're not going to go over there. You're not a medal contender. Just use this as an experience. They had always been planning for Beijing. And so he basically was like, okay, this will speed up your development a little bit. By the next time you go to the Olympics, you'll have some sense of what it's like. And so when does she go from Aaron Jackson, you're going to use this as a testing ground to, oh, Aaron Jackson's a thing. She knew that she had a lot of talent. That's sort of obvious, right? Because she had no technique at that point and she was able to qualify for the Olympics. So think about how incredibly talented she must have been and how fit she must have been to be able to sort of muscle her way through Mm -hmm. this. And so she always felt like I can get to the top. It's just a question of when I will do that and how I will do that. And she tried to be really patient with herself the first couple of years. And then about two years ago, she started to feel like, oh, I'm good at this. I know how to do this now. But there's just so much to work on. You know, she's still so new. Her coach says she's still in the infancy of her time in the sport. And she's just so good. And she works so hard that she's able to sort of compensate for lack of experience. Stephanie, as journalists, we love stories like this. There's just so many elements where you just, you marvel at it and you say, this can't be real. What an amazing tale, including the fact, as you mentioned, that she's from Florida, which I wouldn't expect (laughs) to be a hotbed of speed skating activity, even though Brittany Bow and she are both there. How is it that some of the best speed skaters in the world are from a place that has no ice or cold weather? It's that pipeline we were talking about, that inline Mm -hmm. skating to ice speed skating pipeline. Going back to my early days of inline skating, my coach Renee Hildebrand, she's like this world-renowned coach who's responsible for like multiple-time world champions and even Olympians. Like my teammates, Brittany Bow and Joey Mantia, we all grew up in the same city, on the same team, with the same coach. Like we've known each other for years. There are a ton of inline speed skaters there. 
And the ones who are really good have the realization that Aaron Jackson did, which is, this is really fun, but it would be really cool to go to the Olympics. And I can't do that in this sport, but I can do that in a sport that's fairly similar. So now we have Aaron Jackson. She's established. She's a star. She's been granted this golden ticket to go back to the Olympics, courtesy of her friend, Brittany Bow. What are her prospects looking like? Who's her biggest competition in Beijing? Honestly, she might be her biggest competition. She's very, very good. And speed skating in some ways can be a crapshoot. It's not quite as much of one as short track, where it's just if you stay upright, you can win. But things can happen like they did at the trials. You know, that was a pretty important event. And it's not like she choked. She just stumbled. And that can happen to anybody. So speed skating is definitely a sport where there's room for a little bit of chaos, I think. But she's still the favorite, obviously. Yes. I love watching speed skating as well. I feel like it's like poetry, you know, watching the way people move across the ice. And I really hope to look extra poetic soon. We're crossing our fingers for her. She's a very easy person to root for. Stephanie Epstein, this was a gold medal interview. Thank you for this. (laughs) Thanks so much. Stephanie Epstein's cover story, Aaron Jackson is ready to make a statement on ice, is available now on SI.com. We'll link to it in our show notes. After a break, we'll speak with Ben Rhodes about the human rights abuses and diplomatic skirmishes swirling around the Beijing Olympic Games. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Biden administration will not send any diplomatic or official representation to the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games, given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against uh, humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. The athletes on Team USA have our full support. We will be behind them 100% as we cheer them on from home, but we will not be contributing to the fanfare of the Games. There's never any shortage of pomp and pageantry when it comes to the Olympics, or controversy for that matter. As the 2022 Winter Games begin in Beijing this week, we wanted to speak with an expert who could explain the myriad issues that have already dogged these particular games. From human rights abuses by the Chinese government to its suppression of freedom of speech and pro-democracy efforts in the region. Ben Rhodes is a former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama and the author of two excellent books, The World As It Is and After the Fall. And you can hear him as one of the hosts on Pod Save the World. Ben joins me to discuss an Olympics that's shaping up to be about a lot more than just sports. Ben Rhodes, welcome to Sports Illustrated Weekly. Exciting to be here, like a non-political space talking about politics. Still politics, yeah. Well, you're a sports fan and uh, among your many areas of expertise is international politics and global affairs, so you're perfect for this topic. The Winter Olympics in Beijing are upon us, Ben. Because of COVID, we'll see a similar bubble set up in terms of the logistics to what we saw at the Summer Games in Tokyo. But what will be different in Beijing, as you've discussed on Pod Save the World with Tommy Vitor, is the diplomatic boycott. And a whole host of countries, including the U.S. and Australia and Britain and Canada, have decided not to send political emissaries. So, Ben, walk our listeners through why that is. Well, the main reason is that over the last few years, the Chinese Communist Party has detained estimates are a million plus Uyghurs. That's a ethnic and religious minority in Western China in essentially a network of concentration camps in an effort to kind of stamp out in the Chinese government's telling extremism, but really feels like an effort to wipe out Uyghur culture, essentially kind of a cultural genocide. And there are reports that not only is there kind of forced labor and obviously detention, but there have been other kinds of atrocities committed, people kept in just horrific conditions. And so that's the precipitating human rights issue that has been cited by the U.S. and other Western governments in this boycott. The reality is there's also just kind of a building sense in the United States and some other countries that for too long, we've essentially tolerated Chinese human rights abuses in our relationship. And, and you're seeing a different response uh, today than you did, say, in 2008 when Beijing hosted the Summer Olympics. So this is basically just us and other countries, uh, the ones that we listed, not sending people of political renown in their individual governments. That's right. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, well, at least in 84, when the Soviets yeah. boycotted our Olympics in L.A., but in 1980, there was a full boycott, no U.S. athletic participation in the Moscow Games. This is much more limited. It just usually there would be senior officials who would go to the Games. President Bush actually went in 2008 mm-hmm. to the Beijing Games. I actually 
back in my old life was on the delegation to the closing ceremonies in the London Games in 2012 from the U.S. government, which was Very a lot cool. of fun. Less problematic. Uh, yeah, I got to see the uh, gold medal basketball game. But um, so it just basically means that there will be no official participation from the U.S. government, which is something. It sends a message. It makes sure that this will be part of the storyline of the Olympics. And it denies China the kind of capacity to flux in front of the world in quite the same way that, that again, they did in 2008. Yeah, it is something, although the French being the French dismissed it as pointless. Um, but the Uyghur situation isn't new. All sorts of activists have spoken out for years. Back in 2008, Mia Farrow, for one, led a protest against the Summer Games in Beijing, where she was carrying an Olympic torch and wearing a shirt that said, Genocide Olympics. But the Games are back in Beijing, Ben. So is there any evidence that the Chinese care about a diplomatic boycott or that anything will change on the human right front? Or are the French right here that this is sort of an ineffectual approach? To split the difference here, they're right and they're wrong. They're right in the sense that I don't think this will change anything about the Chinese government's policies towards the Uyghurs or other human rights concerns. On the other hand, we're talking about this. And I think that the reality of the diplomatic boycott is that there's just going to be more tension on an issue that maybe not a lot of people in the United States or around the world were following that closely, which is in particular the Uyghur issue. There are, there are other issues too. Mm-hmm. You know, the Chinese government has essentially kind of wiped out Hong Kong's relative autonomy and civil liberties. Uh, the 2008 issue was uh, the Tibetan people who've seen essentially their culture mm-hmm. squeezed almost to the point of no return by the Chinese government. So you know, it's not going to change things immediately, but it is going to elevate the profile of issues that the Chinese government would certainly not like to be the the focal point of these games. Yeah. And as you said, we're talking about it. And that's something that I wanted to discuss with you. I wonder how much people are clued into these issues here in the States and how much they care, because I'm sure that you saw this recently. One of the limited partners for the Golden State Warriors got in trouble on a podcast for saying he didn't care. This is what Chamath Palihapitiya had to say. Nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You you bring it up because you really what? care, and I think what that's do you mean nice that you cares? care. The rest of us don't care. I'm just well, telling you a very care? hard. Wait, wait, I'm you're telling you, you personally very, don't care. I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Okay, of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Okay, oh, of all the things that I care about, it is below my line. Ben, big yikes on that. The Warriors quickly denounced those yeah. comments and wrote him off as a small, limited partner. And Palihapitiya tweeted an apology. But Ben, what did you make of those remarks? And is it in any way representative of a broader section of Americans just being sort of like disinterested in this? Yeah, you know, I, I saw that at the time and I, I mean, first kind of wondered like, what is above his line? Yeah. <laughs> kind of genocidal activities, not. But to be fair, I mean, the reality is that The United States, and when I say the United States, I mean our entertainment sector, our sports sector, certainly our corporate sector, private equity, has kind of voted with their actions in a way over many years in that they haven't cared. You know, China's a huge market and there's a lot of money to be made there. And you see Hollywood movies censoring content that the Chinese government doesn't like because they want to be on screens there. You see... American businesses plowing investment in China, some of which is used for the kind of surveillance technology that's used to perpetrate the kind of mass surveillance of Uyghurs that led to the detention. I could go on. Yeah. So, you know, he's kind of identifying the reality that we haven't cared enough. And I think one thing that's important, John, to understand is part of the problem, I think, is that Americans think, well, it's the Chinese Communist Party. It's always been this repressive kind of communist place. And that's true to a point. 
But what I think people don't fully appreciate is in the last several years, particularly since the current president of China, Xi Jinping, took power in 2013, the degree of repression inside of China has kind of gone up exponentially. And that's most manifested in the Uyghur issue in Xinjiang province in Western China. But again, you see it in the treatment of dissidents within China, the kind of evisceration of any space for people to have any independent points of view in Hong Kong and on and on. So I think Americans may not fully appreciate that this isn't the old repressive Chinese Communist Party. This is kind of a new flavor that is a lot more belligerent and assertive. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the suppression of pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. Time, since the pandemic hit, time has sort of like stopped having any meaning for me. But back before Daryl Morey was the general manager for my beloved 76ers, he was the general manager for the Rockets. And the NBA does a ton of stuff in China. It's the biggest international market for the NBA. And during the preseason that year, he tweeted in support of the pro-democracy protesters. And China lost its mind. Like, Maury basically had to go underground for a while. And you helped me with that for a story I wrote for my former employers But we've seen this before. I mean, the Olympics, the NBA, basically everybody but the WTA, which I want to get into, all these sports want to court the Chinese market. But in doing so, are they complicit or like at least tacitly enabling the Chinese on some of these anti-democratic efforts? Yeah, in a way. I mean, what happened to Daryl, I mean, I talked to him at the time, is indicative of many things that go far beyond just the NBA in the sense that it was a fairly innocuous tweet. It was like, mm-hmm. stand for freedom, support Hong Kong. Didn't even yeah, criticize- which, What do you get excited about there? Exactly. Didn't even criticize the Chinese government, right? Yeah. And and actually, by the way, Twitter is not in mainland China. Right. So for this to be a story there, they had to choose to elevate it. The Chinese mm-hmm. government did in all their propaganda organs and kind of stir up national sentiment, which is a sign that they wanted to send a message not just to the NBA, but to anybody doing business here, that, hey, if you're doing business here, you got to play completely by rules. And that means shut up about anything that's inside what we think is our internal affairs, right? Yeah. You know, the Top Gun sequels coming out. Like, this is how particular they get, John. In the first Top Gun, Tom Cruise's flight jacket had many flags on it, including a Taiwanese flag. The Chinese Communist Party believes that Taiwan is a part of China. And this time around... There's no Taiwanese flag yeah. on that jacket. You know, that's the the level that they get into this. And what they really are doing is they're kind of weaponizing how lucrative their markets are to everybody, not just sports leagues, but including sports leagues, to send this message again that like we will broach no criticism of our human rights record, our policies. If you want a piece of the pie in terms of the Chinese market or Chinese investment, you better just shut up. And frankly, most American businesses to date, have played by those rules, but that's getting more and more difficult as China gets more and more assertive. And frankly, as opinion, including political opinion in this country, is increasingly alarmed about that. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned Top Gun. John Cena, I'm a huge Fast and Furious franchise guy. John Cena made a faux pas and had to go back and apologize after the latest Fast and Furious movie came out. So that happens regularly. And you also mentioned, you know, some of these businesses that haven't really backed out. All of this stuff is swirling around. NBC paid billions for its current Olympics deal. It's still going to broadcast the games. And then hardly any sponsors or advertisers have pulled out. Intel, the semiconductor company, China's 26% of its market, they're still in. Coca-Cola, Airbnb, Procter & Gamble, Visa, Bridgestone. I could go on. They're all still in. And you know, sometimes in America, we love the Cold War anti-communist angle, but isn't this capitalism, like keeping quiet to profit off China in the games? 
That's exactly right. I mean, in the Cold War, we kind of linked capitalism and freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, we were for the open societies and the other guys were for dictatorship and communism. Kind of part of what's happened is that there's been a wedge driven between freedom and capitalism in the sense that like to be capitalist in China means that you have to shut up about freedom, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, we see this over and over and over again. And like, we just have to consider the reality that we have as an entire society, as a government down to individual actors and athletes have placed profit over whatever concerns we have about human rights. And the Chinese government can smell that from a mile away. And what they've done recently is just kind of weaponize that more. Well, I'll give you another example. Nomadland, which won the Academy Award, directed Mm -hmm. by a Chinese-born director, Chloe Zhao. They basically whitewashed the news of her winning the Academy Award in China. The Chinese government has scrubbed the internet here of any mention of Chloe Zhao's Oscar win, her acceptance speech, even her reference to a classical Chinese text that all people at birth are inherently good. Online searches of the Beijing-born director's win show no results. News articles, hashtags, and videos have been taken down. She made a fairly innocuous, again, criticism of the Chinese government where she basically just said in an interview a couple years ago, or or I don't know how long ago, but it wasn't like right before the Academy Awards. Yeah. She said that, you know, part of the reason she was operating outside China is just easier to express a point of view through your art. Again, not even like that critical. I mean, so they're using their capacity to control information and to control access to their market, again, to kind of hermetically seal out any criticism. And this Olympics is going to be a test of that. I'll I'll say, you know, look, I'm an MSNBC contributor, so I'm talking about one of my employers here. Right. But the reality is not only does NBC have these games, Universal Studios sure. also has very lucrative theme parks in China, right? So it's, you know, you're wrapped around an axle. You're like, well, you know, if we criticize this on air, does that mean that they're going to shut down our theme parks? Again, this is just my, I don't know that that's the case. I'm just guessing. So the point is across the board here, Every business that's operating in China has this kind of difficult choice to make. So the ripple effects there are really interesting to me, especially because as you've mentioned, and as everybody knows, the freedom of speech is such a huge issue going into these games. And we saw previously Chinese tennis star Peng Shui accuse a top Chinese government official of sexual assault. Then all of a sudden she disappears and the WTA, to its credit, rose to her defense. But I'm Curious what you think will happen if there are similar political protests or people speaking out at these games. We've seen it in the past at the games, most notably Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who famously raised their fists in protest at the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City. But the IOC has an official policy. Raising a fist or kneeling before an event is okay, but during the medal ceremonies is not allowed. What do you think will happen at these games? Do you think we'll see athletes violate that in protests while anthems are being played and medals are being handed out? And if so, how do you think the Chinese will respond to it? It's a great question. And frankly, it's something to really watch for in these games. You know, Olympic athletes have tended by and large to be not that political, in part because by and large, most of them are not that wealthy. And frankly, them taking the potential hit of losing endorsements could be painful. If you want to see a painful interview, Look at the Burton CEO, Burton Snowboards, uh, recently did an interview in which he was asked about this stuff and mm. kind of wasn't that far off what, what we heard earlier in the clip. You know, it's kind of like, well, I don't know if anything wrong is going on in Xinjiang. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if you want a Burton endorsement and Burton has a huge market there, maybe you don't want to do this. I think that what would happen if somebody protested, though, and I think somebody probably will. Usually there's an Ennis Cantor, Ennis Freedom type person yeah. who, who's willing to raise their voice. First of all, 
Nobody in China will see that. And that's an important thing to understand is that they have such control over social media and obviously official broadcast media that it would essentially be a protest viewed maybe by the people who are physically in the venue, but then to the wider world. It won't really reach a, a large audience in China. That was the case with Peng Shui. Right. When she posted her message about sexual assault from a very senior Chinese Communist Party official, that message disappeared almost instantaneously. Yeah. And something that was a global news story was not at all a news story inside of China. And what'd be interesting, though, is it'll put the IOC in a very interesting position. Do they completely sell out any sense of principle by, in some fashion, sanctioning an athlete on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party or not? So that may be a good issue to force because the IOC is basically turned into a pretty corrupt organization that whether you look at these games, you look at the kind of whiff of corruption around the Sochi Olympics in Russia in 2014, you know, it does feel like it's time to shine a little light in their direction. And that may be the thing that a protest accomplishes is just shining a light on whether or not the IOC sanctions the athlete or not. Yeah, and they deserve that scrutiny. As you said, I mean, they've been seen as a pretty corrupt governing body for a while now. But I I did want to talk to you as well about sort of the attendant hypocrisy. As a journalist, the freedom of speech issue is huge for me. As a human being, the human rights violations are huge for me. But as an American, like we're hardly without sin when it comes to how we treat people of color, the unhoused population, people living in poverty. Everything is relative, certainly. But as Americans, as we're talking about all these things, are we casting stones here while living in a glass house? It's a really good question. It's one I wrestle with a lot. I'm someone who's tried to be critical of our own democracy and society. I think it is important, number one, to recognize that even if you take the most kind of maximalist critique of social justice, racial justice, and other inequities in American society, the scale of what you know is taking place in China with the Uyghurs, or I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong, wrote about it in my last book. Yeah. You know, these are people that just lost all their freedom. I mean, literally, like yeah. people thrown in prison if they say anything, post anything on social media, even have a conversation with somebody that is critical of the government. So this is the difference between a totalitarian system in China and a deeply flawed, at times, democracy here in the United (laughs) States. And here's the other thing I'd say about this. Yeah, we're in a glass house to some extent, and the Chinese government, this is the card they play constantly. It's just whataboutism. So they'll just say, well, actually, the big crime is how black people are treating the United States, etc. I would say in response, look, we talk about that all the time here. You want to talk about the NBA or any professional sports league in this country has a huge culture of protest, has huge commentary on social justice issues. And so why not have the same kind of conversation about what's happening in China? Yeah. So actually, like, even if you are a critic of aspects of American society, like, there's no reason that you should have a double standard in which you're allowed to criticize injustice in this country, not in other places. And so to me, this is one instance where you may be in something of a glass house, but there's no reason not to point out that the other guy's house has a lot of problems <laughs> as well, and including problems that go far beyond even the worst excesses that we see here in this country. Yeah. So, I mean, it's there's just so much to this as we go into these games, Ben, like so many factors that, and so many things that are happening in China that we've discussed. And so I, I struggle with it a little bit as a viewer from a consumer standpoint, because 
I like the Olympics. Like I'll stay up and watch curling or the biathlon, which is just like people cross country skiing with rifles Love and, then biathlon. They, and then they stop Love to it. shoot at stuff, which that shouldn't be a thing, Ben, but it's a thing. And I watch, so I'm torn. Like Dan Lebetard recently said on his show that he's not going to watch because of the lack of free speech for athletes and citizens in China, which is a commendable stance to take. But there's going to be guys on skis shooting at stuff that I want to watch. So what should we do here? Are you going to watch? Yeah, you know, I think I'll watch. It is an interesting kind of individual moral question. But the reality is, and this is why I didn't necessarily think a full boycott made sense, the athletes are not the guilty parties here, you know, including the Chinese athletes. And in Mm -hmm. fact, part of what's supposed to be nice about the Olympics is it's one of the only venues in the world where people from literally everywhere are kind of competing, associating with each other just as human beings. Yeah. And so to me, to kind of punish an athlete by not watching something that they've prepared, because the other thing I love about the Olympics, right, is how long has that guy prepared to cross-country ski and then shoot something? (laughs) Or how long has that figure skater worked on her routine, you know? And to me, like, not watching them doesn't feel like it's going to register a protest with the Chinese government. Yeah, maybe you're adding some clicks to Peacock or something. But again, I, I don't know that that's the difference. To me, using this to have a conversation, I think it is progress. So in 2008, they have the Olympics in Beijing. There's very little discussion of this. They have this insane opening ceremony that they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on in front of all these world leaders, including George Bush. And... It was kind of China, again, flexing on the world stage. This time around, I think that there's going to be a lot of conversation swirling around this Olympics, a lot of commentary about things that the Chinese Communist Party would rather people weren't talking about. And hopefully coming out of this, each progressively, you know, it gets harder and harder for sponsors to be in China. It gets harder and harder for, I mean, if you look at the NBA, for instance, and yep. it's Cantor's been popping off for months now about human rights in China. And in part, because I I don't think that the NBA games are on CCTV, the Chinese state broadcaster, there's not really any discussion of it. And so there's there's something of a normalization of a degree of dialogue and criticism about this happening that is healthy. And that needs to kind of bleed into other sectors like we've been talking about, where American investment is going there, whether the employees of companies are able to be outspoken about human rights abuses, whether the entertainment industry in this country continues to totally self-censor around issues in China. I think that will probably crack at some point because of these types of conversations. So it's going to feel a bit creepy to watch the kind of hyper-choreographed nationalism Mm. that will probably be on display. I'll tell you what I won't watch. I won't watch the opening ceremonies or the closing ceremonies. That's fine. I never watch those anyway. No, that's true. I mean, sometimes they're good, but the one I went to in London was like a classic rock concert. It was kind of awesome, actually. It was all like the (laughs) British invasion artists. But but anyway, I I think that um, everybody can make that decision, but I'll probably watch. I think... The point you make about having a conversation is a good one. And also what you said about it not being the fault of the athletes, including the Chinese athletes, is a good one. And it's going to make me feel a lot better when I'm up at 2 a.m. watching speed skating. (laughs) Go read his books, The World As It Is and After the Fall, and listen to him each week on Pod Save the World. Ben Rhodes, thank you for not boycotting Sports Illustrated Weekly. (laughs) Thanks. Great to be with you. After the break, Michael Vick tells us about the first time he was in Sports Illustrated. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought 
in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. He's a former All-Pro quarterback, now an analyst for Fox NFL Kickoff. We are pleased to be joined on Sports Illustrated Weekly by Michael Vick. Michael, thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah, no problem. Michael Vick, tell me about the first time you were in Sports Illustrated. Yeah, the first time I was on Sports Illustrated on the front cover and a, and a strong feature was, I think, my going into my sophomore year in college. And I like had the Heisman pose. Oh, nice. And there was a cool shot. I really didn't like it because I thought it was just too premature to be talking Heisman. And I felt like I didn't arrive yet. I had a good year prior finished strong in the national championship and uh, we had an amazing season, a season to remember, but I didn't think I was really Heisman worthy as a freshman, even though I went to the Heisman. And then I think in the feature of my teammates was, they was holding me up and uh, I had that pose and I was like, man, I got to live up to this now. So I felt depression. I love what was going on, but I felt depression. Well, I mean, the hype around you back then had to be massive, right? So you're a college kid. You're walking around campus. You Like you said, you had a good season, but everybody was talking about you then. All of a sudden, you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated. What was that pressure like for a college kid? It had to be a lot to deal with. 
Yeah, I mean, when those things start to happen, which is what you want, which is what you envision, and those are the things that you appreciate years later. You know, I just wanted to focus on football. And I wanted my teammates to view me as a leader, so I included them in the whole feature. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be us. It wasn't about me. It was we. And uh, it was a lot of pressure because I knew I couldn't win those games without them, and I knew they couldn't have success without me. So, you know, it was like, man, doing this, we got to definitely repeat, and I certainly got to end up on this cover again next year or – you know, they're going to be labeling me a bus. So I felt the pressure from it, but I liked it. Yeah. That Hasman pressure was real, though. I, I won't lie about it. You get caught up in trying to win it and trying to do everything right and it kind of take away from your game. But it, it's, a, it's a natural emotion. It sounds like, I mean, when you were saying you're trying to live up to it, that in addition to the pressure, you're sort of using that as motivation, too. Yeah, yeah no doubt. And a, and a lot of guys who came after me and came before me went through that same pressure. I was doing great. I just had an injury versus the University of Pittsburgh. And I think that kind of knocked me out the race. But, you know, you look at the guys who wanted Lamar and Derrick Henry and, you know, all those guys, you know, over the last couple of years, I mean, whoever won it had that type of pressure and had to deal with it. And that's why when you come to that next level, that pressure is not as intense, you know, or immense as it was when you was in college because you kind of went through that, that Heisman pressure, which is a different type of pressure. So you got the Heisman thing going on. You're you're on Sports Illustrated. Everybody's paying attention to you. Everybody's talking about you and what it's going to be like when Michael Vick goes to the league. When you're dealing with that, like, what's it like with your friends and family? Do you feel like your life is changing? Yeah, you definitely feel like your life is changing. And you know, monetary-wise, that things are going to change dramatically, too, or drastically, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, so, you know, you kind of get caught up in it. But for me, it was all about football. It was never really about the money. The money just came. It became about dominating. It mm. became more about being the best in my position, respectively, amongst all my peers. And, you know, whether college or pro, uh, I'm at the elite of the elite. And that's where it is still with me. I would imagine, I mean, in addition to having pressure, though, like you have to be, to be an athlete of your caliber, you have to be confident, right? You have to believe in yourself. You have to know that you can do these things. So was there a portion of Michael Vick back then, college kid, where go, okay, I want it to be about my teammates and I want us to have a good season and I do feel the pressure, but uh, I'm still Michael Vick. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big deal though, for sure. <laughs> like I, I knew that. Like it wasn't nothing to go, you know, in Dietrich Hall on campus or go somewhere where they were serving the best of food and eat for free. Yeah, yeah. Like, I get it. I knew what was going on. Like, I felt the energy. And it was amazing. It was like, I, I work hard for this, and this mm-hmm. is what I want. And hopefully this is the beginning of something that's going to be great and everlasting and, uh, you know, have durability and you know for the duration of my career, uh, what it was going to be at the time. So I, I embraced it, man, and, and everybody yeah. else did, too. And my teammates, they knew, too. They was happy for me. They, you're going to be a first-round picker. Yep. The Baltimore Ravens, I read this morning, said they'll take you in the first round, you know, top five. I'm waking up like, knock it off, man. We got practice today. Let's go be <laughs> the best that we can be in practice because if we don't practice well, we don't obtain none of that. So I was conscious about the road that needed to be traveled. I mean, look, I went to school and you, you think about like what it would be like to be the big man on campus. You were the actual big man on campus. That had to be like a little bit trippy, right? Yeah, yeah. I was the big man on campus. And of course, everybody knew me. My house yep. was the spot. 
Everybody came through. Everybody came to say what's up. My door was always unlocked. My teammates can always come in, regardless of who you were. We had a great time. We took care of one another. And then we had a good time, and we vibed, and we had good energy. And a lot of those guys, almost 90% of those guys I'm still close with to this day, like some of my best friends in life. And, uh, you know, of course, we all went on different paths, but it feels good to be old and still be connected. Again, you're, you're on Sports Illustrated. All these things are happening. People are talking about, like you said, you know, hey, I, I hear the Baltimore Ravens might take you. You know you're about to jump to the league, but what does that feel like when you're saying to yourself, all right, you know, as a kid, I, I, prob- I would imagine you're thinking about playing, but now you know you're going. Yeah, well, when it was time to go, I really wasn't ready. I mean, I was just getting settled into the college life. You the man on campus and you, you work hard for that. It's like two years and then it's time to go. It's like I tried to build all this for a reason so I can sit on the throne for a little bit. And uh, the game was just starting to become too easy in college. I felt like I mastered it mentally and I knew defenses and I knew it wasn't a defense that I would see in college that confused me. After a while, my offensive coordinator, Ricky Bustle, taught me well and I felt like it was time to move on to the next level. I just know it'd be more complex. So I just had to get ready for that. But when it was time to leave, I wasn't ready to leave. It took Honestly, my mom, my high school coach, and Coach Beamer to convince me, like, you know, son, it's really time for you to take that next step, and there's nothing left to accomplish, and you got a family that, that's really dependent on you and living in poverty. So Coach Beamer proudly told me, son, this is what you came here for. So we both cried in that process, but it was, it was all good. Turned out to be a good decision. You said you weren't ready when you went. A couple of years ago, you and I were talking back when Lamar Jackson was just blowing up, and you said it reminded you of you when you were just like crazy on the field and doing whatever you wanted to do, you could do. So when you get to the league, when did you finally feel comfortable? Do you remember a moment when you said, oh, yeah, I got this? I think it was the second to the last game of my rookie spot play early. Played against Chicago. I played a game against, uh, I think, Dallas and I end up in a rotation with Doug Johnson. Dan Reeves, I think, really felt like I wasn't ready at the time. So the game plan was very simple for me. And then at the end of the year, he kind of opened it up. Chris Chandler went down and he called the plays for me that he the same way he called them for Chris. And I got a chance to go in versus the Dolphins when they had Seau and Taylor, the defensive end, Zach Thomas on that defense. I mean, they, they had Patrick Sertain and mm-hmm. a, a bunch of guys, superstar guys. And I went out there and I had a decent game. And then the next week we went to play the St. Louis Rams, the greatest show on turf at the time. And our last game of the season, week 16, and we didn't beat them, but we played well. So I think that gave Coach the confidence in me going into the 2002 season that I could start. But after those two games, and when I went into that game in week 15 versus the Dolphins, I knew I was ready. Yeah. Dominated St. Louis and then was the start of the next year. And then off you go. You got real confident, real fast. He's confident on uh, camera as well. Catch him on Fox NFL kickoff. Michael Vick, thank you for doing this, man. Thank you, man. Anytime. Sports Illustrated Weekly is a production of Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more of Sports Illustrated's best stories and podcasts, visit si.com. This episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly was produced by Alex Kappelman and Isaac Lee, who is also our sound engineer. Our senior producer is Dan Bloom. Our executive producers are Scott Brody and me, John Gonzalez. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. Thanks for listening. 
And if you stuck around this long, we leave you with this from Aaron Jackson. I've just never really been drawn to running, and I feel like maybe I just wasn't running fast enough, you know? Um, <laughs> I just don't get that same speed from anything but, but speed skating. But then I guess if you go, if you take it a little further, uh, going too fast kind of scares me. So I, I feel like speed skating is like that perfect speed. <laughs> from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.